Let's put our hands together. Let's celebrate God's goodness. Somebody say, God is good. Come on, tell your neighbor, God is good. If we've never met each other before, my name is Scott, one of the pastors here, and we're just so glad to be together. Grace and peace to all of you. And uh, are you having a good day? Beautiful, beautiful day. Um, let's close in prayer. <laughs> I just looked outside and thought, wow, it's so nice out there. So I've got a few things to say. Um, we're in our series, uh, in our tour through the seven churches uh, that Jesus writes uh, to in the book of Revelation. And um, we've come to the church of Pergama. And it's the third church on our tour. It was a um, academic center. We got some university students with us. It was a cultural center. It was a governmental uh, center. And uh, they had a problem of compromise. And so I'm calling the message, are you living by the promise or the con promise? Con promise. Play on words. Compromise. Compromise. Not, not all compromise is bad. You have two parties that have a different view. A compromise would be a common promise. That's what a compromise is, a common promise, that it brings you together. But you can't have a compromise with a con artist. It doesn't work out because the con artist is going to take you. You're going to move from your position to another position, and it's not going to be healthy because the con artist doesn't have your interest at heart. And so here's the dynamic of Pergama. They were living in this cultural, intellectual, governmental city with a lot of different ideas floating around, and they were being sucked slowly into compromise. They were being conned. And when you settle for a con promise, you miss the genuine promise. And I don't want anybody to miss the genuine promise because the genuine promise that God has for you is for your absolutely best life. We're going to see a name in the letter that we're going to read together in a few moments. And it's the name Balaam. He was the king of compromise. He's an Old Testament character. If you're taking any notes, his story is found in the Hebrew Scriptures in uh, Numbers 22 and following. And he was a prophet. And a foreign king named Balak said, Balaam, don't confuse the two. Balak is the foreign king. Balaam is the prophet. Balak said to Balaam, I would like you to prophesy against God's people. Against God's people? Well, that, that wouldn't be appropriate to prophesy against God's people. And Balak said, but I've got a lot of money. And Balaam said, okay, I'll pray about it. And because he was greedy for money, he went out to prophesy to curse God's people. Can you imagine? And so he stood up on the hillside and he opened his mouth to curse God's people and he tried really hard. But every time he went to curse, 
blessing came out of his mouth. I wish that was your problem. Hallelujah. I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. Praise the Lord. See, he finally turned to the king and said, um, I, I can't curse God's people. We can't get them coming in the front door, but let me tell you how to get them by coming in the back door. Let me tell you that we can get them to compromise. And what I would suggest, and here is the teaching, the, the doctrine of Balaam. I'd, I'd like you to get some of your lovely ladies to go over and to meet some of the young men and just form relationships that would not be healthy. And then as they have friendships and relationships, bring over some of your idols and tell them it's okay for you to keep worshiping God, but also let's worship these idols together. And slowly they will compromise and they will not they will lose God's blessing. I can't take God's blessing from them, but they will give up God's blessing. You get that? Let me tell you this. Nobody, nobody can take God's blessing from you. You can give it up. By the con promise, the chief con artist. So this is what uh, Pergamo was facing, and I want to talk to you just from this brief letter on how to not be conned. First thing is this. You've got to know your source of truth. Let's open our Bibles if you have them there to Rome, Revelation chapter 2. Um, you can get your study guide out. And the opening image as Jesus writes to this third church is the image of a truth giver. And you've got to know where your truth comes from. You've got to have a source of truth that you trust. And here's how Jesus presents himself to the church at Pergama, or some of your translations would say Pergamus, same place. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Pergama. This is the message. Well, here's the picture of Jesus. This is the message from the one with a, the two-edged, the sharp two-edged, the sharp sword that has two edges. What an interesting image. Now, for those of you that are taking notes, uh, you may want to jot down Revelation 1.16, where the picture of Jesus is in the opening act of the book, given, and Jesus has a sharp sword, a two-edged sword in Revelation 1, coming out of his mouth. Why would he choose that image to talk to a group of people that were battling with compromise? Because what he was saying was, you've got to know the truth. The truth will set you free. The truth will keep you healthy. The truth will keep you on track. You've got to know, I am the truth giver. Didn't Jesus say that somewhere? I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. The image comes from Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, if you're taking notes, where it says the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. He's saying that this book is truth. Hebrews has it here, and it's in your study guide. It says that the Word of God is alive and active. It is, here's the image again, sharper than any double-edged sword. Same image Jesus uses. It's, what Jesus is saying to these people struggling with compromise is, I'm the truth. And if you keep your eyes on me, you're going to be okay. If you get your eyes off me, things can go horribly wrong. I, I have the uh, 
sharper than any double-edged sword. It, it, it penetrates. The Word of God penetrates to the dividing of the soul and the spirit, to the joints. It goes to the very heart of the matter. It judges your thoughts. Every day you have thoughts. And you've got to judge your thoughts. You've got to, is this a good thought? Is this a God thought? Is this a bad thought? Is it true? Or is it not true? And he says, this is the judge, this is the standard, this is the thing that's going to help you to know uh, what your thoughts and what your attitudes, uh, even the attitudes of your heart are. You see, Pergama had a lot of intellectuals. In fact, the second largest library in the ancient world was Pergama. Anyone know where the first biggest library was? It was in Egypt, it was in Alexandria? Yeah. In fact, there's a story uh, that 300 years before Christ, the leaders of Pergama tried to headhunt the librarian from Alexandria. And they made an offer to the chief scholar and librarian, come and work for us. And he said, okay, because they had a lot of money, I guess. And so he was getting onto a boat in Egypt when the Egyptians said, no, we're not letting you go. They put him under arrest and they put him in chains and he had that job for the rest of his life. Aren't you glad you live in a free society? <laughs> then, then Egypt said this. Uh, because you tried to headhunt our librarian, we are not going to send you any more papyrus. Papyrus was what the writing was. Remember, they took the reeds and they pressed and they made it into paper. And that's what the whole library system was built on, papyrus. They said, we are cutting you off from papyrus. So the, the scholars in Pergamos said, okay, what are we going to do now? We have no paper. What can we do? What could we do? What could we do? And they developed something called parchment, which was much better than papyrus and actually put the papyrus business out of business. That'll show them. Smart people in Pergamos. Their library had 200,000 volumes. Now, in 200,000 volumes, there's a lot of ideas floating around. You ever go to the library? Do you ever go to the library? <laughs> Do you ever Google anything? <laughs> Do you ever look on the Internet? Lots of ideas, right? Lots of ideas just floating. So how do you know that's a good idea, that's a God idea, that's a true idea, or not? How do you know you're not being conned? Jesus says, this book. So I, I, love, I love this book. If, if you have a debate on like, is it really real? Well, the first 39 books, for sure. For sure. It's the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures? For sure. Because the guy who rose from the dead, Jesus, said those books are in. That's all it takes for me. And I, I'm not going to, I could go through the reasons for the resurrection, but that's another message. But the guy conquered death, and he said, those are good books. I said, okay, Jesus. Got those ones. The other 27 are about Jesus. I like those too. And it guides me in my life, and it's there for my protection, and it's not there to rip me off. It's there to help me. Uh, Josh McDowell tells uh, a, a story that he's told for a long time ago, a young man named Greg, real guy, who lived on a, a street, and at the end of the street there was a, a house with an uh, in-ground pool, and uh, 
the young man Greg had never been in that pool, always had wanted to go in that pool. One night he's walking along and he knew the people that were from that house were on vacation. He knew the house was empty and he said to his girlfriend as they walked along the street, let's go swimming. This is our chance. All we have to do is climb the fence, break in, and swim. It was dark. They climbed the fence. They broke in. He took his shoes off. He went onto the diving board. She was still taking her shoes off when he jumped into the pool and landed with a blood-curdling scream because they had drained the pool. His life was never the same. And here was the point. He thought the fence was there to keep him from pleasure. But the fence was there to keep him safe. Here's what Jesus is saying. Hey, it's a sharp sword. And it's not there to keep you from pleasure. It's actually there to keep you safe. And he presents this image to this church. I'm the one who sorts things out. What would Jesus do is a great question to ask. Great question. It helps to sort things out. And so he presents himself as the the author of truth. And, and where does your truth come from? I'm for reading. I got lots of books. I'm not on, up to 200,000 yet, but how do we know? I take all of those ideas and I filter them through this. I, I, we are a Bible-based church. I have, my, I have my Bible on my iPhone. I think you should have it on your iPhone. I have it on my computer. I think you should have it on your computer. I have it on my iPad. I think you should have it on your iPad. But when I come to church, I bring my Bible. And I, and I put it up here and I open it up and I read out of it because I want you to know it's not just what Scott says. It's what the Word of God says. That's so important to us. And Jesus stands and he stands in this church and he says, I'm the one. I'm the one that has the two-edged sword. I'll sort things out for you. And you've got to know that he is the source of your truth. Second thing is that he, he points them out is you've got to know where you live. And you've got to know that you live in a culture and a society. And it's not all good. <laughs> he, he says to these guys, listen to how he describes their city. He says, you live in the city where Satan has his throne. That's pretty bad. Or you see the last line of verse 13? It, it, you are in Satan's city. When we live in a culture, in a society that is influenced by all kinds of things that are compromise. Pergamus was a, a city that was located about 15 miles from the Mediterranean. It was up on a high elevated pitch. You could actually on a clear day see the Mediterranean. Halfway up the mountain, it's a 800 feet elevation, they had carved a throne called the throne of Zeus. Massive throne and an altar to Zeus who was the chief god of the Greeks. Some people feel that that's the throne that they're talking about. But at this time, the worship of Zeus was on the decline, just culturally. So others feel, and there were other choices, they had um, Ascapus, who was a, a healing god, a healing center. In fact, um, 
to be healed in the center of Ascapus, who was called, well, listen, Ascapus was called the Savior. A little offensive to Christians. And uh, to be healed in the center of Ascapus, where people traveled from all around the world to come to the spa to be healed, it was filled with snakes. And so you would lay down, and the snakes would climb over you. Can we sign anybody up? That method of spa has been in the decline recently. They're not doing that so much now, but Ascapus may have been. More than likely, it was the emperor worship which was predominant at this time. You think we have weird politics. Listen, Christians have been putting up with weird politics for a long time. So important, brothers and sisters, to keep focused on Jesus. In their politics... They had an emperor, head of government, who declared himself God. Caesar is Lord, was prescribed by law. In fact, the whole cities on the prescribed day would have to bring an offering of salt, a pinch of salt, and bring it before the community and declare Caesar is Lord. Now, could Christians say that? This is why there was a rub between the Romans and the Christians. Because the Christians came up with another saying. Jesus is Lord. It's why it's so prominent in the New Testament. Because they wanted people to know, it's not Caesar, it's Jesus. And this church was good. They They were representing Jesus. They were loyal. Watch what it says in the middle of that verse we were just in. Um, You have remained loyal to me. They weren't declaring Caesar is Lord. They were standing up and saying Jesus is Lord. And that's probably what happened to Antipas. You see him named here. We don't know a lot about him. We know just what's written here. We know that Antipas was faithful. He was a witness. And that he was killed for his faithfulness. That's all we know about him. I'm going to meet him in heaven someday. I'm going to ask him a little bit more about his life. Antipas, tell us a little bit about yourself. I think one day they said, Antipas... If you will not say Caesar is Lord, we're going to kill you. And he said, okay. I will not recant. Publicly, I am taking my stand. I think the church publicly took a stand in the city. And they're commended for their public loyalty. But the problem was, not just the city they were living in, which they were aware of, it was who was living in them. And this is important for us. We live, and sometimes we can get all animated about the culture we live in, the the community, the message of this world. But who is living, let me ask you this, who is living on the throne of your heart? Everybody has a throne, and if God is not on the throne, somebody else is there. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's some lifestyle. Maybe maybe George is living on your heart. You know George. George lives. George lives. George lives on a lot in a lot of hearts. George Washington. He's, he's on the throne of a lot of hearts. Uh, some people uh, would rather have Honest Abe living on their heart. Uh, some people like um, this guy because he's big on Broadway right now, Hamilton. Some like the wild president, Jackson. Some like Grant. 
Some like Benjamin, Franklin. So this is a personal question, but it's a, it's a good question. Not just the city you're living in, but who's living in you? What's in, what's in your heart? Because they were standing publicly loyal, but they were having a problem with private compromise. Watch this. They were standing, and he commends them. You're standing publicly loyal. You're coming to church. You're singing the songs. But, he says, there are some small things, and I need you to pay attention to them. That's the third thing I'm going to talk to you about. You need to pay attention to the small things when it comes to being compromised. Compromised. Listen to even the language that uh, is used. He said, I have a few things. Not even a lot. Just, uh, there's just a few things. And, and I've got a few things against you, and there's only some. Not a lot. There's a, sub, there's a few people, there's some of the people there, and they have bought into the teaching of, there's his name, of, of Balaam, who said, just send the girls over with their seductive smiles, and then just start to introduce the idols, and just inch by inch we will get them. And they did. Read Numbers 22, 23, 24, 25. They did it. The people of God lost the blessing of God, and that's exactly what he's warning them here. You can lose the blessing of God by just allowing the small things. Oh, come on. Here's where's the doctrine of Balaam, that you can live in the kingdom of God, and you can live in the world at the same time. Or be of the world, because we all live in the world. But I guess the question is, how much of the world lives in us? Right? Oh, come on, Scott. I, it's just, I'm just a little party I got invited to. And yeah, I got to fit in. I, okay, I'm going to go to the little party. I'm just going to have a little drink and then another little drink and then another little drink until I'm really drunk. And then because I'm really drunk, I'm going to do stupid stuff. How many know that happens? Oh, you look at me so saintly. Y'all are like, mm, I don't know. How many have seen it on television, maybe on the internet? I don't know. So you know somebody somewhere. So, so I'm going to tell you, every big thing that happens began with a little thing. And that's what he's saying. There's a few, and, and what they wouldn't do is deal with the small thing, and, and Jesus sees the potential of the small thing becoming a big thing. And it happens personally in our lives, and it happens nationally to us. So we used to have no abortion, then we had abortion first trimester and second trimester and third trimester, and now we are killing the babies after they're born. It's not abortion anymore, it's infanticide. How did we get there? How? Now, if you are a sister that's here and you've been through the horrible circumstances of divorce. I'm only here to say to you there is grace and there is peace and there is love and there is forgiveness from a father who will clean that up. But as a Christian, Jesus-following, God-loving person, I believe that God loves life. He loves it when it's in the womb and he loves it when it's after the womb and he loves it all the time. He loves life. So, And how do we not get that? 
watch, watch this week. I just, how, how, does, how do we say that? How does that happen? 1871, an American was digging around in the dirt in Turkey. And uh, he made a discovery of the ancient city of Troy. Maybe you've read about Troy. Maybe you've read Homer's Iliad. Or maybe you've watched the Brad Pitt movie. Guess wherever you are culturally, <laughs> it's one or the other. But the Greeks besieged Troy for a long time, 10 years. If you went to see the ruins of Troy, the walls are 16 feet thick. They were impenetrable. For 10 years, the Greeks besieged them, and they couldn't get in. So what did they do? They built a horse, and they got in their boats, and they sailed away, and the king of Troy said, oh, what a lovely gift. And he opened the gates of the city, and he brought the horse in. And inside the horse were the warriors who at night got out of the horse and opened the city gates as the navy arrived, and they pillaged the city. They were destroyed not from the outside. They were destroyed from the inside. And that's what Jesus is talking to this church about. You can be strong on the outside. And I don't know what the issues are on the inside for you. This is personal. This is stuff the Holy Spirit has to talk to you about. I don't know what your small issues are. But I encourage you to pray a prayer that says, God, if there's any small issues, would you put your finger on them and ask me to change them so that I can be victorious? Let me talk about the last thing. Because this is where victory is found in when God gives you the identity of your life instead of you trying to find it in the world, which is the con, that's the con job. He says to them in verse 16, repent. Remember what repentance is? It's to change your focus, to stop looking into the backyard. Remember that? And start looking in the front yard to change what you're focused on. Turn your focus away from anything that's distracting you from God and turn towards God. That's re what repentance is. And then he says, for those who will repent, what happens to them? If they won't repent, he shows up suddenly, and what does he have? He's got that sword. He's got that truth. There's the picture again. I am the one that is going to be the final judgment. You may listen to the 200,000 volumes, but in the end, you're going to I'll just tell you, you're going to stand in front of Jesus. So why not let him sort you out now, because I promise you, someday he's going to sort you out. Wow. So repent. And if you will, if you'll stop the small compromise, if you'll come back, he gives you this promise. He says this, anyone with ears to hear, let me just do the survey again. How many ears in the house? Okay, this is for you. It's available. If you've got ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit would say to us. Which means it's possible for you to have ears and not listen. To stay where you're at. But someday the truth will sort you out. That's what he's saying. You've got ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. You will be victorious. That's where I want to be. And then he has this image. You're going to be given manna. Remember what manna was? Manna was food that fell from... Remember manna in the Bible? Food that came from... Heaven. Who supplied that food? Now get this. Because what the world has to offer 
will not satisfy. Get this. But what God offers will satisfy your soul. Don't be conned by compromise. What the world has to offer is like Chinese food. Do you know Chinese food? I like Chinese food. I eat Chinese food. Tastes great. And 20 minutes later, <laughs> come on, right? What do they do to that food? I don't know. 20 minutes later, you're hungry again. Go, I need more Chinese food. Those Chinese, they're so smart. What he's saying is, I'd love to know what that joke is, but you'll have to tell me later on. What he's saying is that if you will not be conned, you'll find satisfaction. That I will satisfy your soul. I'll give you manna and it will satisfy your soul. Don't settle for the cheap compromise. I will satisfy your soul. And I will give you a white stone. There's lots of scholarly debate on what that white stone is. And lots of ideas. And I, would, I would just look to you, very wise people gathered here. Uh, a white is a symbol of purity, right? Okay, case closed. I'll just say that. That's all the scholarship you need. What, what he's saying is, I'm going to make you pure. I'm going to clean you up. And then he says, I'm going to give you a new name. What is that? I'm going to give you an identity. Nobody else will understand it. It's between you and me. It is your name. Our, our team is reading a book, and I'd recommend it to you, by uh, Tim Keller, called Making Sense of God. We're in a section of the book that we talk about this week, and Tim Keller tells us that there's three ways that people form their identity. They can form their identity inside themselves, finding themselves, forming themselves. When someone forms their identity inside themselves, you'll watch them sometimes progress through many different selves. They're remaking themselves, trying to, trying to find some satisfaction. So they try this self, and then they try this self, and they try this self. And Have you ever met somebody 10 years later and you go, I don't even know you. You're like a different person because they've become like four people since then. Self-identity. Identity can be formed from culture, from society, from family uh, expectations, what people expect of you. If you're like this, if this is the, the socially prescribed identity that you will uh, receive and, and work in, then we will, we will accept you. The only problem with that is that it creates uh, tribalism because every group has a little different way of defining what identity is and, and you're with us and they're with them and we love our people and those people, we don't love them at all because they, don't, they, don't, they have a bad identity creates a lot of us and them feeling in the world. And then there is the identity that comes from God. And here it is. That God takes you as you are and he makes you pure. He gives you a white stone. 
You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. He just gives it to you. You follow him. You follow his truth. And he makes you pure. And because it's a gift, you're very happy that you are pure, but you're not overly proud. Because you didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You've been forgiven, and that's the only way you got your value. Your identity comes from being forgiven. And because you didn't earn it, you can't be really hard on other people. So it doesn't create an us and them. It creates, I've been forgiven, and so I'm going to be forgiving. God wants to give you an identity that will be so beautiful and so peaceful. And he always upgrades. When he gives you a new name, it's always an upgrade. Right? Peter, the fearful, becomes Caiaphas. The fearless. It's an upgrade. Saul, the persecutor, the man filled with hate and bitterness and rage, becomes Paul, the man who wrote the most beautiful words ever captured in human language describing what love is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's an upgrade. He becomes an apostle, a prophet, a world changer. Abraham, the man with no children, becomes Abraham, the father of many nations. It's an upgrade. I'm just saying, brothers, sisters, take the upgrade. Don't settle for the con job of this world. Listen to the one who has the, the truth, the one who calls you by name, the one who knows you. And let him give you his identity. You won't go under. You'll go over. You won't compromise. You'll find truth and that truth will set you free. And you'll be freer than you've ever been before. And you will change the world because of who you have become in Christ. Let the church say amen. Amen. Let the church say amen. So we stand together and we close our eyes and we open our hearts and our prayer partners come and we invite the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit to speak to us and to speak through us. We open our hearts to receive the grace and the love of God and I encourage every single person to receive the grace and the love of God in prayer. As we pray a community prayer together, we invite the power of the Holy Spirit to change lives. May your life never be the same again because Jesus is in the house in this moment. And we talk to God together and we say out loud, Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you in Jesus' name and I open my heart, my life, my soul to Jesus Christ. Come into my life. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. I repent of anything that takes me far away from you. And I look towards you, Lord, to receive your love, your grace, your forgiveness, your mercy. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for making me pure. Give me my identity who you call me to be. Let me hear your voice. Deliver me from compromise. In Jesus' name, everybody says amen. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. So, bless the Lord. 
Jesus is in the house, his Holy Spirit is here, and lives will be changed. We're going to pray together in a moment. If you're saying yes to God for the first time, it's so important you tell one of our prayer partners. I'm, I pray that prayer. Or you can even text in. We'll send you stuff. You can just, if you're saying yes to God, just text the word yes, Y-E-S, to 941-260-1321. And we'll just start a dialogue to try to help you in your spiritual life. If you've been compromising, and just the Lord whispers to your heart, talk to God about that. But it's just a little thing, Scott. It was a little thing in this church, but Jesus put this letter in there so we'd be, oh, little things become big things. Just be aware of what he's calling you to, the promise, the promise, the promise, not the con job that this world system has laid on you. Our prayer partners will pray with people. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are here to minister to you and through you. If you'd like to receive communion, there's a communion station at the left-hand side and the right-hand side just to remember Jesus, that his body was broken on the cross for you, that his blood was given, his life was given for you, and you just remember. You don't have to be a member of this church to receive communion. You don't have to be a member of this church to receive prayer. But the Bible says when two or three people pray together, Jesus shows up and the miraculous takes place. And we believe there's a miracle in the house. We believe that God can meet your needs, physical, financial, spiritual, business, relational, whatever it is, God can meet you. And that's our prayer. If you've been a guest here today, thanks for coming. Please come again. We believe that God has an identity to give to you, a purity to give to you, a destiny to give to you. And we want to see that cause you to be victorious. And if you've been here as a guest, we have a special room for you. You are a VIP, and the room is the VIP room. It's back on the left-hand side. We'd like to meet you and gift you and just bless you. Thank you for coming. You got any questions, let us know. We just want you to grow to become the person that God wants you to be. I'm going to pray a, a blessing, a prayer. After this blessing, the prayer team will begin to pray with people. The communion will start to be received. The worship team will lead us in worship. Go with the grace of God as you take Jesus with you. But I just pray in this moment that the Lord will bless you and the Lord will keep you. The Lord will cause his face to shine upon you and he'll be gracious to you. I pray that the God of hope, that's what he is, the God of hope will fill you with all joy and all peace as you trust in him, not in yourself, as you trust in him so that you will overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I bless you in the strong, mighty, and majestic name of Jesus. And in Jesus' name, you are very blessed. And all of God's people say, amen. Let's give the Lord just a praise. Good to be together. We love you so much. Come forward for prayer. Come forward for communion. May the blessing of the Lord be with you.